0: All right, so this evening, we will be in Deuteronomy 5 and 6. So a brief review of where we have been. So Deuteronomy chapters 1, 2, and 3 is uh, Moses' summary to this new generation of Israelites um, since the Exodus. And then, last time we were together in Deuteronomy chapter 4, <clears throat> there, was, um, the, there were these exhortations to obedience. And um, we made the case last time that Deuteronomy 4 is a, is a very um, important chapter. In it we have uh, the uniqueness of Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, in uh, verses 33 and following, and then the uniqueness of the nation Israel itself. And this evening, as we get into Deuteronomy 5 and 6, we will again see uh, some of the most important chapters in Deuteronomy. And uh, Deuteronomy 6, uh, beginning in verse 4 especially, uh, is uh, one of the most important scriptures in the Old Testament, especially to the Jews. And we will see uh, a couple of very interesting things in it tonight. But I'm going to go relatively quickly Uh, through Deuteronomy chapter 5 because here we have this um, second edition um, uh, if you will, of the Ten Commandments Uh, we talked at length about the Ten Commandments uh, back in the highlight in Exodus study and so uh, we will just touch on a couple of high points in Deuteronomy chapter 5 I'm going to pick up in verse 1 Then Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the ordinances which I am speaking today in your hearing, that you may learn them and observe them carefully. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb, Horeb is Sinai. The Lord did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with us, with all those of us alive here today. The Lord spoke to you face to face at the mountain from the midst of the fire, while I was standing between the Lord and you at the time, to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire and did not go up the mountain. He, God, said, I am the Lord your God. And this is uh, also uh, back in Exodus 20. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Verse 11. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you so that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you, that your days may be prolonged, and that it may go well with you on the land which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And so at the end of verse 21. Uh, ends the ten commandments um, I would just say uh, what one thing here in this first portion of deuteronomy five that is interesting to note um, in verses two and three so uh, in the, the the first discussion we had uh, in the in uh, deuteronomy um, session one from the highlights in Deuteronomy series, um, I made a note here I believe if I remember correctly. Um, In verses 2 and 3. So verses 2 and 3 read this way. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. The Lord did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with us, with all those of us alive here today. And at the time, I believe, I made uh, the note here that it's important to understand um, that um, verse 3 especially was pointing out um, that this second generation of um, Israelites... Uh, was also uh, involved in the covenant uh, that was made at Sinai or Horeb. So, uh, in fact, I, I believe at the time I uh, Im- I said that there was an implied only after the word fathers there in verse 3. So the Lord did not make this covenant with our fathers only, but with us, with all those of us alive here today. And uh, some, some commentators uh, pick up on this as well. And... Um, and uh, so that's where I was coming from with that. It's, it's interesting, though, that as I was studying in anticipation of tonight's discussion, some commentators have a slightly uh, different take uh, on verse three. Uh, so, for example, uh, they they would say that when it when it when Moses says the Lord did not make this covenant with our fathers, the fathers there um, is referring. To Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and uh, that was not something that that I had um, seen before, at least that I could recollect um, or that I personally had thought about um, and so I find that uh, very interesting as uh, and i, I won 't go into all the details here because we could we could sort of go down a bit of a rabbit hole talking about the significance of that particular interpretation on um, redemptive history, and more specifically, uh, a covenantal theological uh, perspective. But if that were the case, I would just say um, that if that interpretation uh, is what is being um, implied here in verse 3, then that would definitely speak to the exclusivity um, of uh, especially, maybe perhaps the Ten Commandments uh to the nation Israel, and so there would be some ramifications and implications of that, so it's very interesting um and so I just wanted to make those two sort of perspectives available to you from verse three uh as to uh what the word Uh, fathers there, which is basically uh, uh, the word Abba, uh, what what that means. So it could mean the previous generation of Israelites and so uh, identifying that this current second generation of Israelites is also involved in the covenant at Sinai. Or it could mean and be referencing uh, the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, in which case the the implications would be uh, perhaps a little bit different. So I just give that to you uh, if you're uh, scanning through some commentaries, uh, you, you might find either one of those interpretations. I'm going to pick up now in uh, chapter 5, verse 22. These words, this is Moses speaking. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain from the midst of the fire, of the cloud, and of the thick gloom, with a great voice, and he added no more, and he wrote them on two tablets of stone, and gave them to me. And it came about when you heard the voice from the midst of the darkness. While the mountain was burning with fire, that you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders. And you said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and his greatness, and we have heard his voice from the midst of the fire. We have seen today that God speaks with man, yet he lives. Now then, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God any longer, then we shall die. For who is there of all flesh who has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the midst of the fire as we have and lived? Go near and hear all that the Lord our God says. Then speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you and we will hear and do it. And the Lord heard the voice of your words when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard the voice of the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They have done well in all that they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me And keep all my commandments always, that it may be well with them and with their sons forever. Go, say to them, return to your tents. But as for you, Moses, stand here by me, that I may speak to you all the commandments and the statutes and the judgments which you shall teach them, that they may observe them in the land which I give them to possess. So you shall observe to do just as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right or to the left. You shall walk in all the ways which the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live, and that it may be well with you, and that you may prolong your days in the land which you possess. So, after this second edition um, of the Ten Commandments is given in the first half of the of Deuteronomy chapter five, we see here this summary of how Moses was um, asked, uh, in, in some sense, begged by the people of Israel to be the intercessor for the nation Israel. And we see um, that uh, the Lord was pleased uh, with that request. And, and, and he was pleased with that request because to him, uh, in verse 29, you can see why the Lord is pleased. Because he sees in that request for Moses as intercessor, the, the fact that the Israelites at that time were afraid of him. Uh, and we will see uh, we will see fear again in deuteronomy uh, chapter six, and so um, this uh, this fear of the Lord, which obviously later on, even in exodus, uh, specifically exodus thirty two for example, with the golden calf incident, uh, that fear that the Israelites fe- felt at the base of Sinai did not last very long, um, but certainly here. In Exodus um, 18, 19, 20 through 24, for example, um, the Israelites were definitely in fear because God came to them, uh, spoke to them from the mountain, and was—and the mountain, of course, was in fire and thick smoke. And so it must have been an incredible sight to behold, and it uh, bred fear in the Israelites. And in verse 31, I would note uh, just from Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 31, uh, that is. Um, You can read about that where God uh, commands Moses to stand there by him, uh, that he may speak to Moses all the commandments and the statutes, etc. That happens in Exodus chapter 24, verse 12. So that is a a recounting, uh, basically, of the, uh, the covenant which God made. Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, made with Israel at the base of Horeb, or the base of Sinai. And again, you can read um, through that narrative back in Exodus, essentially, 19 through 24. And then, of course, there's this um, promise that comes along with this in verse 33. You shall walk in all the way which the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live, that it may be well with you, and that you may prolong your days in the land which you shall possess. And so again we see this here clearly a statement of the covenant of works. uh, Do this and live. uh, Deuteronomy chapter 5 verse 33. Now before we get into Deuteronomy chapter 6 I I just want to set up um, a significant portion of the rest of our study in Deuteronomy. So um, it has been recognized that essentially Deuteronomy chapters 6 through 26 are merely an extended commentary on the Decalogue, on the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words. So Deuteronomy 6, and this is how we're going to treat this, uh, Deuteronomy 6 through 26, we're going to treat those chapters as a commentary, a divine commentary on the Decalogue. So just, uh, you don't have to write these down because um, my plan is to keep track of these, but just to give you a sense of how this is going to be apportioned out. So, for example, Deuteronomy 6 verse 1 through 11 verse 32 is commentary on the first commandment. Deuteronomy 12 verse 1 to 32 is commentary on the second commandment. Deuteronomy 13, verse 1 through 14, 21 is commentary on the third commandment. Deuteronomy 14, verse 22 through 16, verse 17 is commentary on the fourth commandment. Deuteronomy 16, 18 through 18, 22, commentary on the fifth commandment. Deuteronomy 19, verse 1 through 22, 12, commentary on the sixth commandment. Deuteronomy 20, <coughs> 22, 13 to 23, 14, commentary on the seventh commandment. Deuteronomy twenty three fifteen through twenty four seven commentary on the eighth commandment, Deuteronomy twenty four verses eight through sixteen, a brief commentary on the ninth commandment, and Deuteronomy twenty four seventeen through the end of Deuteronomy twenty six is commentary on the tenth commandment. And And so, my hope is that, as we go through here, um, as always my my intent is to try to help us make um, and i 've said this before uh, make a, uh, help us to make these old Testament books um, smaller in a sense some some books that we can get our arms around and understand and so if in your mind, you have this uh, 21 chapters of Deuteronomy, chapters 6 through 26, if you see those merely as divine commentary on the Decalogue, my hope is that with that in view, that would give you a sense uh, of the, uh, that you, have, you can wrap your arms around these large portions of the Old Testament, which may have previously uh, been difficult to understand. And so that is where we are headed. We are headed for the next 21 chapters. I have no idea how long that will take. In terms of how many Wednesday evenings, but that is where we are headed. For the next 21 chapters, we essentially will assume that they are a divine commentary on the Ten Commandments. So we pick up this evening in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 1. And again, as I said, the commentary on the first commandment will stretch from Deuteronomy 6 all the way through Deuteronomy 11. So there's clearly a focus here in the next five or six chapters on commandment number one, which if you go back, just turn your page back, Deuteronomy chapter 5 verse 7 is commandment number one. Very clearly, very succinctly, you shall have no other gods before me. And so we will spend some time um, going through this divine commentary on the first commandment. So let's pick up here in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 1. Moses is speaking. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be prolonged. O oh, Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. And so again, I'll just stop here just very briefly. These first three verses, you can see this, these exhortations to obedience with promises on the backside, right? Um, verse 2, at the end of verse 2, that your days may be prolonged, Right? And then he's taking them in at the, at, the, at the end of verse 3 into a land flowing with milk and honey. And so this carrot, as it were, is being held out in front of Israel in the hopes that it would motivate them to obedience. Now, Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. A, a very, very significant text for multiple reasons. So I pick up in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So this um, set of verses is called the Shema, the Hebrew Shema, And Shema is Hebrew for the word hear. That's why it's called the Shema, the first word of verse 4. Hear, O Israel. This is one of the most important scripture verses to the Jews. Um, It is definitive of their faith. Right? Obviously, the Jews, as well as Christians, in addition to Muslims, we are all rabid monotheists. There is only one God, and so this is a great statement on the 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 oneness, the uniqueness of God. In this case, the Lord Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. What else I want you to see here is in verses four and five, the name, Lord, in your Bible, it should be in all caps, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. We have said this many times before. I say it again. When you see the word Lord in all caps, that is Yahweh. That is what we call the tetragrammaton, the four letters, right? Y-H-W-H. This is the covenant God of Israel. This is how the Lord the God of the universe revealed himself to Moses all the way back in Exodus chapter 3 verse 14 when Moses approaches the burning bush. And Moses says, well, when I go down to Egypt and I talk to the Israelites and I ask them, um, and they ask me, who sent you? What should I tell them? And he says, Yahweh, I am who I am. So this is the, the great covenant name of the God of the of Israel and and Christian commentators see significance in the fact that Yahweh or the Lord is mentioned three times in the context of the Shema for obvious reasons to Christians right because we believe not only in one god but we believe in one god who has revealed himself in three divine and distinct persons the father the Son, and the Spirit. So it's very interesting that Yahweh is mentioned here three times in the Shema. Verse five, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Of course, we know this as the first and greatest commandment from the lips of our Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. Uh, He quotes here from the Deuteronomy, Shema verse five in Matthew chapter 22 verse thirty seven and so um, this our ears ought to perk up when we hear this first and greatest commandment. In verse six. Right. So if, if we have love as the root, right, this is the first and greatest commandment, that we should love the Lord our God with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our might. What we see in verse 6 is that we should love God and meditate on his words. Do you see that in verse 6? And these words, which I am commanding you today, shall be on your heart. So we are to love God always at the root of our obedience and meditate on his word. That's verse 6. Verse 7. And you shall teach them. What is them? These words. You shall teach these words diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and so on and so forth. So we should love God and teach his words. Right? So verse 6 is love and meditate. Verse 7 is love and teach. And then in verse uh, eight, you you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. And if uh, I don't have a, a picture here in front of me, but if you if you go out onto your favorite search engine and you type in the word phylacteries, p h y l a c t e r y, phylactery, you will see pictures of of. Um, uh, Devout Jews who have these boxes um, band and tied to their head uh, in front of their forehead, and so they literally uh, took this Shema, frankly quite literally, and they put the words of God inside these little boxes, and then they attached them to their foreheads, that they might always be between their eyes. Okay, and so this again, uh, Deuteronomy six verses four through nine, extremely extremely important text, and we will come back to it near the end. Verse 10, Moses still speaking. Then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And by the way, I note that fathers there um, lends credibility to the second interpretation all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 5, right? So, because the fathers here are identified as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of all good things which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you shall eat and be satisfied. Then watch yourself, lest you forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of of slavery. And so here what we see in verses 10, 11 and 12 is we see all of these blessings that God is going to give to the Israelites when he takes them into the land of Canaan, subsequently of course under the leadership of Joshua. And and we see that these are gifts of grace, aren't they? These are gifts of grace. These are cities that they did not build. These are houses that they themselves did not fill. These are cisterns full of water that they did not dig. These are vineyards and olive trees which they did not plant. And they shall eat and be satisfied. These are gifts of grace that God is going to give to them in the land of Canaan because he swore to Abraham he would give them that land. But then he says in verse 12, Then... Once I have given you this land, then watch yourself, lest you forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. This is a warning. So previously we saw the carrot, right? We saw the the blessings being placed out in front of the Israelites. And now in verse 12 of Deuteronomy chapter 6, we see the stick, if you'll go with me, right? The carrot and the stick. So we have promises ahead. We have warnings behind. That's what we see in verse 12. Again, As we're going through this divine commentary on the first commandment, I remind you the first commandment, Deuteronomy 5, 7 you shall have no other gods before me. Now, let's pick up in verse 13 of Deuteronomy 6 again, as commentary, Moses says, you shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship him and swear by his name. You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the peoples who surround you. For the Lord your God, in the midst of you is a jealous God. Otherwise, the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you, and he will wipe you off the face of the earth. Verse 16, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. You should diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, and that it may be well with you, and that you may go in and possess the good land which the Lord swore to give your fathers by driving out all your enemies from before you as the Lord has spoken." When your son asks you in time to come, saying, What do the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments mean, which the Lord our God commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us from Egypt with a mighty hand. Moreover, the Lord showed great and distressing signs and wonders before our eyes against Egypt, Pharaoh, and all his household. And he brought us out from there in order to bring us in, to give us the land which he had sworn to our fathers. So the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always and for our survival as it is today. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to obey all this commandment before the Lord our God, just as he Commanded us. And so we see not only in verse 6 did we have love God and meditate on his word, and in verse 7 we have love God and teach his word, but in verse 13 we have love God and fear the Lord. Love and fear. Those are not exclusive ideas. And then in verse 18, love God and obey. Love and obey. And of course, what should be in our mind is John 14. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. And so we see obedience is distinctly and directly tied to the love of God and the love of Jesus Christ. I note here, um, again, it is stated in verse 15 of Deuteronomy 6 that the Lord, Yahweh, your God, in the midst of you is a jealous God. He will not share his glory with any of the other gods. Again, consistent with the clear and concise first commandment. I note here in verse 16, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. So um, the first portion of the verse is um, as you probably know, a quotation that comes from the, the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter four, verse seven, as he's being tempted by Satan in the wilderness. And then the last portion of verse sixteen uh, comes as uh, a reminder uh, of what happened all the way back in Exodus chapter seventeen, verses one. where the Israelites, that first generation of Israelites, put Yahweh to the test by grumbling against him. You can go back to Exodus 17 and see the details there. Verse 23, He brought us out from there in order to bring us in. And so just as we think about not just the Israelites of the Old Testament, but even our own salvation, and and this is, in, in my view, a great statement of, of perseverance and preservation, the preservation that God um, performs for us as His people. He has brought us out of the slavery to sin to bring us into His eternal kingdom. So I just want to encourage you with that. Okay, I do want to spend some time here um, back in the Shema. So if you would, go back to um, verses 4 through 9 of Deuteronomy. Chapter six Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now, if you would please turn with me to first Corinthians eight, six. First Corinthians eight. I'll actually pick up in verse one, but verse six is where we are going to spend most of our time. First Corinthians eight beginning in verse 1. This is so important, and you have to see the connection between Deuteronomy 6 and 1 Corinthians 8. 1 Corinthians 8, picking up in verse 1. Paul is writing, Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Verse 4. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, verse 6, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Okay? So, 1 Corinthians 8, 6. For us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Now... I want to show you something, so I'm going to do my best to share my screen. So the first thing that I'm going to show you on the screen, this is the Greek New Testament. And it is 1 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 6. And so I'll, I'm not doing, going to give uh, an extended lesson on on, uh, on the Greek here uh, quite frankly, because uh, I don't know that I'm even qualified to do so, right? So my, my Greek is, is not great, but I know enough to make the following points to you. So there are a couple of things I want you to see. Can can everybody see my screen? Can somebody validate that? Yes. Thank you very much. Yes. Oh, okay. So the first thing I want you to see on the screen... Um, this is the Nestle-Allen uh, 28th edition of the Greek New Testament. And, and you can see here that verse 6 on the screen is set apart. It's not uh, in the same format as verses 1 through 5. And the reason is because um, at least uh, those who are compiling the, the Greek New Testament here see um, poetry as opposed to prose. So verses 1 through 5 are clearly in paragraph or prose form. But verse 6 is set apart. And this is uh, something that you will see uh, elsewhere uh, in, in the scriptures in the scriptures that you have in front of you, for example, if you're reading through uh, Exodus and you get to the Song of Moses, you will see that the formatting is different in the Song of Moses than it is in the narrative portions of Exodus. And, and they do that to, to sort of hint to you that there's something different about this particular text. Now, it is most likely that in the text that you have in front of you of the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 8, you don't have this set apart. But in the Greek New Testament, it is set apart. So what does that tell us. It's telling us that this um, is likely a, a a poem, or a piece of poetry, or perhaps an early creed, or a hymn even, that Paul became familiar with after his conversion. And so what does that tell you? What that tells you is that as, as the early church was gathering together on the first day of the week, and they were producing these... Um, essentially elementary creedal statements, right? That this is something that Paul heard. And so it's actually even earlier than 1 Corinthians itself. And 1 Corinthians is extremely early, right? And so this idea that appears here in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, this idea that the Father, God, and the Lord Jesus Christ are equal, the divinity of Jesus... The, here's the point. The divinity of Jesus Christ is extremely early. And I say that because what you will hear from the skeptics is that the divinity of Jesus Christ is a later development and it's something that only came along after John wrote his Gospel and it's read back into Matthew, Mark, and Luke and all these other things. And what I'm saying here is that if this is an early creed or an early hymn or an early poem that Paul reads or hears and and then writes down and repeats, I'm telling you that this is evidence of the early high Christology. So that's something that should encourage you, number one. Number two, I would also note, if you go back to the Bible that you have in front of you in the English, in 1 Corinthians 8, here's one thing that you don't see in 1 Corinthians 8. You don't see Paul in verses 4 5, and 6, giving some long explanation about the divinity of Jesus Christ. Why is that? Quite frankly, because the divinity of Jesus Christ was a given in the early church. The divinity of Jesus Christ was early in the church. Okay, He's not saying, oh, the Lord Jesus Christ, and by that, here's exactly what I mean. That's not what he's saying. He's taking Jesus Christ as equal to the Father, and he's saying it in passing, that it is, we all know this, Everyone knows this. I mean, even look at the sort of, the, the um, how. I'll begin in verse 4. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there's no such thing as an idol in the world, and there's no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him, Paul writes, matter-of-factly. Right? Again, strong encouragement for all of us. Right, the divinity of Jesus Christ. This is not a doctrine that comes along later. This was given in the early church, and it's spoken and written here, matter of factly, by Paul, and in poetic form. So don't believe the skeptics. If you want to boil all that down, don't believe the skeptics. We see here in First Corinthians eight six the early belief in the divinity. Of Jesus Christ. Now, one more thing about the Shema and First First uh, Corinthians eight six. So again, if you go have your finger in Deuteronomy six, I want you to look at verses four and five again. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Okay, this is the English translation of the Hebrew, in most cases, for the text that you have in front of you. I also want to show you um, I want to show you something else. So this is the Greek version of the Shema. The Greek version of the Shema. So starting here at this yellow star right here, this word here is here, H-E-A-R, here Israel, okay, so this is uh, from the yellow, oh, I'm sorry, oh, I appreciate that, how about now? It? Yes. Okay, excellent. Yes, Thank you. Sir. Okay, sorry. So, where the yellow star is, this is where Hebrews 6.4 begins. I'm sorry, not Hebrews. Deuteronomy 6.4 begins in front of you. So, this this Greek word here is the Greek word for here. H-E-A-R. This is Israel, here. okay? And so, I want you to see that the... the this is the, the Deuteronomy 6 verses 4 and 5 from we, what we call the Septuagint or the LXX. It's the Greek version of the Old Testament. And so this is the Shema in Greek. And so here's what I want you to see. I want you to see a couple of things. In the blue underline, this is the Greek word Kyrios, Kyrios, Kyrian. Okay? This is Lord, Lord, And so, as I previously mentioned in Deuteronomy 6.4 and 6.5, there are three mentions of the Lord. And so, Lord will be important in just a moment. There's also here, Theos, Theon. This is the Greek word for God and ice. Okay, So, I want you to see Kyrios, Theos, Ice. Now, when I go back to 1 Corinthians 8.6, and I'll share that with you again. I want you to see. Kyrios, Theos, Ice. And so here's what's happening here in 1 Corinthians 8 6. Paul, Pharisee of Pharisees, who had studied the Hebrew scriptures, who knew Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 because every Jew knew the Shema but but Paul's a Pharisee, right? He's well-learned. No doubt he's aware of the Shema even in its Hebrew form. And he's aware also as the apostle to the Gentiles he's also aware of the Septuagint the Greek version of the Shema. And so what is he doing here in 1 Corinthians 8.6? He is literally expanding the Hebrew Shema to include the Lord, Kyrios, Jesus Christ. That's what Kyrios, Jesus Christ. So in the purple box. okay, That's what's going on in your text in 1 Corinthians 8.6. 6. When you read, For us there is but one God the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. Paul is expanding the Hebrew Shema to include the eternal and divine Son, the incarnate Jesus Christ. And this is an amazing thing. And that's the tie between 1 Corinthians 8, 6 and Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. One last word as I wrap up for this evening. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 6, as I mentioned in verse 12, there's this warning to the Israelites. After all of these blessings that God articulates to them in verses 10 and 11, these... um, um, cities and houses and cisterns and vineyards and olive trees and food that they shall be eat they shall eat and be satisfied he then warns them in verse 12 watch yourself lest you forget the lord and and just here as a matter of um, history and, and and believe me, there is no equivalency being drawn between Old Testament Israel or the, and the United States of America or anything like that but I, I think that it's interesting here there's a document uh, from March thirtieth eighteen sixty three It's called a proclamation appointing a national fast day and so just as a point of historical uh, reference for uh, those of us in the United States. Uh, President Abraham Lincoln signs this proclamation. Whereas the Senate of the United States, devoutly recognizing the supreme authority and just government of Almighty God in all the affairs of men and of nations, has, by a resolution, requested the President to designate and set apart a day for national prayer and humiliation. And whereas it is the duty of nations as well as of men to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God, to confess their sins and transgressions in humble sorrow, yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon, and to recognize this sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by all history that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord. and In so much as we know that, by His divine law, nations like individuals are subjected to punishments and chastisements in this world, may we not justly fear that the awful calamity of civil war, which now desolates the land, may be but a punishment inflicted upon us for our presumptuous sins to the needful end of our national reformation as a whole people? We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own intoxicated with unbroken success we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace too proud to pray to the god that made us exclamation point it behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power to confess our national sins and to pray for clemency and forgiveness so again i'm not drawing any parallels between old testament israel and the United States of America. But I do find it interesting that at some point in our history, a president of the United States quoted Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 12, We have forgotten God, and so these curses, the curse of the Civil War, has come upon us. So that's for your edification, and hopefully um, that was helpful to you.